Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 213, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, what makes good PD good? And fewer students are developing a love for reading long text. So is there anything we can do about it? Stay with us. This is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics in news and the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why and how we can teach the psychology of decision-making to our students. Hello, everybody. Nick Gordigo here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum and instruction, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I will not complain. (laughs) And I say that because so many people probably could complain today based on our local COVID numbers. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read you some headlines that I've got as I was just kind of prepping for the show. And I'm always searching for news related to schools. And and this is what I'm reading right now. Ed Week uh, headline. Omicron is making a mess of instruction, even where schools are open. Bloomberg, New York City school operations crumble under Omicron's weight. The Guardian, staff shortages, fear and confusion, Los Angeles schools grapple with COVID chaos. Uh, WCVB-TV, which is out of Boston, class still on for Boston public schools despite district's COVID-related shortages. And out of Austin, Texas, the Austin American Statesman says, Austin area schools see rising teacher and student absences. Is that overplaying it or is that what it's like on the front lines? I don't think that's overplaying it. Um, I think that they're portraying an accurate picture of what they're experiencing. Um, I can't speak for any districts other than ours, obviously, but we definitely saw an increase in our uh, numbers. And as of right now, our secondary schools have gone completely virtual. Wow. Okay. So, and as for, the the staff like how how are the teachers holding up are you seeing a lot of them out with yes we have a great number of employees out which is probably having the greater impact on running schools right now right is why we went ahead and went virtual yeah i would figure that's kind of the thing that would probably shut down school the fastest it's like you can send kids home once you're out of teachers you're out of teachers like you Uh can't continue instruction or it might not just be teachers it might be bus drivers or other key people that it takes to operate a school it's in every area that um it's making it difficult to operate a school you're absolutely right right down to child nutrition i mean you have to consider every critical piece um, that it takes to serve children every day. Well, I know I sound like a broken record, but it's amazing what educators are trying to do around the country. Um, I hope uh, this is a quick spike and it goes away quickly, as we kind of mentioned in the last episode. I hope it's not something that drags on through the whole semester. And uh, I'd like to say, you know, by February, you know, things are looking much better. Well, let's not talk about it for a little while. Let's uh, break away from the COVID exactly. discussion. And um, I've got a few things just education related that I did see pop up on my radar that I felt like sharing. Um, one was from a past guest on his blog, David Stewart Jr. And uh, he wrote a little article about what makes good PD good. Uh, and he had, oh. he had a little list and I liked his list. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of read you some of the things and you chime in. All right. 
right. Well, how about this? Okay. How about I give you my opinion? Okay, yeah, yeah, go let's ahead. Let's see if I hit the mark. Let's do with it. The article. What you got? Number one, I would definitely have to say that it has to be purposeful. One of the things that drives teachers insane is when we have them sit in a session um, and there's really no takeaways, nothing they can go back and readily implement. Um, a professional development is only quality when the presenter is extremely knowledgeable and, and can engage mm-hmm. um, its participants. And I think my last thing, I'll just say three, um, a professional development is certainly um, valuable if you walk away with resources and strategies. Um, and it's not something that you're going to go and file in the drawer or it's not some quick fix, something that's hot right now that fizzles in the next month or two. Teachers are certainly tired of the constant changing in trends in education. You, you guys are very much in line with each other. And I think most people would probably agree. Um, he says that in this one, I heard you say almost word for word, good PD is delivered by a credible individual, someone who demonstrates care, competence, and passion and urgency. Wow. So, now, I like that. I'm going to have to write that down. Say that one more time. Sure, sure. Somebody who demonstrates care, competency, passion, and urgency. And then he goes on to say bad PD is delivered by a non-credible individual, someone who demonstrates indifference and competence, or the filibuster kind of running out the clock. Um, so, and I get that. Like you invite someone maybe from the outside to kind of come in and speak and they're just kind of, you know, they didn't prepare. I could see how that could could wear on you. On, on a I like team, that. Um, mm-hmm. he's got good PD uh, helps me do my job. Bad, bad PD just adds more things to my job. Uh, good PD gives me less but better things to think about. It clarifies and focuses. He says good PD takes only the time it needs and not a second longer. And I think you'd probably be a, some applause to go there right after mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. Good PD treats teachers like multifaceted souls in need of encouragement, equipment, and understanding. Bad PD treats teachers like computers in need of software updates and data downloads. Uh, he says that good PD couldn't have been done via an email. So I think that's a good one. I'll say that again. Good PD couldn't have been done via an email. Yeah. <laughs> I completely agree with that. Um, one of the things that I chose to do when I became a principal some years ago was to get away from having faculty meetings. Everything you can say in a faculty meeting can certainly go in a memo. And so I would have um, Pollard's points is one of the things I called it. And every Friday I tried to put all those curriculum things and all the upcoming dates and just all that type of housekeeping business um, in a staff newsletter or memo and try to treat staff development truly as staff development, as a training um, that, you know, was tied to our content or our standards um, and and definitely got away from just people sitting and listening to me go over a list of things. And his last one is good PD targets fundamental understandings and competencies that apply to every person at the meeting. Bad PD ignores or minimalizes the roles of folks whose jobs don't fit with the topic. And that's got to be challenging if you're bringing in like a, a full staff and you're trying to find a topic that applies to everybody? That, that is tricky. It is, but you have to think about your vision and you have to think about your initiatives for that year. So generally, you want to differentiate professional development just like you differentiate instruction for children. You want to give teachers what they need, whether it's on an individual basis or by grade level or by department. But oftentimes, there are topics um, and needs that have to be addressed school-wide. For example, one of the things that 
all teachers and not just teachers, even non-certified that directly serve children in classrooms all have to be trained on dyslexia awareness. Mm. So that's something that, you know, it's required. Everybody will benefit from it. But if I'm going to specifically talk about um, strategies for unpeeling um, text, well, you might think as the music teacher that that doesn't apply to you, but it does, depending on what resources you're using to teach about the historical background of a specific era in music. So you just have to make sure that um, you're clear and explicit about the purpose of the training so that people find value in it. Is there any indicator as somebody who I'm sure you've probably organized these PD events many of times? um, (laughs) Yes. Is there any indicator that you have afterwards to go, that wasn't a good one, that was a good one? Um, first of all, we always give our teachers a survey at the end because their feedback is what's you know most important. But within the first five or eight minutes, I can tell if a session is um, effective or not, uh, depending on if the presenter, again, has to be on time. They have to be organized. They can't waste um, time. They have to get to the heart of the matter and they have to have a personality to make connections. There has to be some collaboration, some questioning. Um, if I'm sitting in a session as the facilitator and I'm observing that a session is not necessarily um, connecting with the audience or it's not going in the direction I want, I will chime in. Mm-hmm. I will ask a question that leads it. I will send a message to the presenter. I will do something to help get us back on track because the last thing you want to do is have a group of educators leave the room and go, wow, that was a complete waste of my time. Right. No doubt. All right. That's a good reminder. It's a good list. It's on DaveStewartJr.com. Uh, Stewart spelled S-T-U-A-R-T. If anybody wants to catch up, as I mentioned, he's been a guest on the show before, and he often does some pretty great write-ups. Um, and again, I like that. Yeah, I want you to send that article to me. I want to share it I will with our that. professional development coordinators and some of our lead teachers and assistant principals who are often in the role of designing and providing professional development. I think those are some key things that they might want to yeah, and it's not, it's not like he's reinventing the wheel, but it's a good checklist to kind of go through, like, does this PD we're about to do, you know, check these boxes? And uh, I really like that. Um, all right. Next up, I've got a story out of Ed Week about something that I'm a little guilty of, and it's it's how do we nurture lifelong readers in a digital age? And I say that I'm guilty of it because... My wife, she's she's a, a big reader of long text of of novels and stuff. <laughs> I I ingest most of that via Audible. Like I have to have somebody read it to me while I'm doing something else. Um, but I struggle to just sit down, whether it's on a Kindle, a real book, to want to like just read a long novel because I'm just constantly distracted. Um, and I think it's also your interest because it's funny that you say you could handle Audible reading it to you. I couldn't, I can't connect to that. I pay my membership. I have Audible. I, I just can't do it. I have to have that book in my hand. I've got to turn those pages myself. Well, that's interesting. And it looks like from the the survey that I'm reading here and the research I'm reading here is about 33% of us actually like really enjoy to read and the rest of us often struggle. And I do enjoy reading, but I read what I'd call short text. I'm, I read news articles mm-hmm. all day long. I'll get up and I'll read for an hour and a half. I always tell my wife, I'm like, I read the whole internet this morning, but it was nothing long. Like it wasn't one topic. It's just constantly bouncing from one thing to the other. 
But do you know how awesome it is that you are intrigued and interested in informational text? Yeah, and yeah, if you were to good. compare that um, to student assessment data right now, that's a weakness with a lot of students. They're mm-hmm. not interested. They can't make a connection to it. It's boring to them, um, you know, and making sure they can understand any type of graphics or graphs or pictures tied to the informational text. So, Actually, I, I want to celebrate you on that. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. I wasn't expecting that, but I'll take it as a win. Um, when I look at this story in Ed Week, it's, so th- the question is like, how do we get kids to be interested, to become lifelong readers? Like, what can we do? Um, I think, you know, certainly we've made the case that there's several kids out there that feel like reading is a waste of time. Um, and mm-hmm. in fact, in the study that I'm reading, like 28% actually say that reading these are 15 year olds who were surveyed but it's they say reading is a waste of time and um 50 say they only read to get the information that they need um so this story goes on to just kind of give us a couple of tips on how we can better prepare students and it's more focused mm-hmm. on like we have to accept that these students are probably going to read on a digital device we we could say you know give them just paper but that's not always the case um and uh the first one is called streamlining. It says close other applications while reading such as email and other websites and encourage students to read through a text completely before going back to follow hyperlinks. Um, it says, you know, it can be easy to get sucked in down those avenues. So it's, there, I guess the point is that we have to actually like teach students some of mm-hmm. these skills. Oh, definitely. Because if you, you mentioned something very early on, you said that you just won't stay focused in a long text. Well, let's think about the children that we're serving today or that we're seeing. They are completely digital. They, they constantly have a device in their hands. Mm-hmm. So the, the love of reading began years ago with the love of having a book in your hand. So that's the very first difference. And so absolutely closing out all other browsers and tabs and apps, um, could help them. But I also think going back to what you said is you love reading the news and being informed. We need to encourage children to read genres and pieces of material that they enjoy. And if reading for information makes you happy, <laughs> hey, let's let's make sure you have access to that type of um those types of texts. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying there in the sense that if, if reading for information makes you happy, like I believe in the student choice, they need to be able to pick their books, right? But even mm-hmm. so, I wish I I wish I had more of a desire to read something that was longer, more than just, and, and I don't know why I lack that sometimes. But what's behind that? Is it just simply because you can see your wife read a very long novel? Um, is it something you've wanted to do for a very long time? Don't don't psych yourself out. <laughs> well, and it, what's interesting is me like having, you know, the desire to read news. Some of the most fun long reads I've ever had have been stories that are maybe not even necessarily uh, nonfiction, but they do have a historical background. They, maybe something that takes place around um, World War II. And it's like, yeah. you know, you're learning about the time. Like, that's what works for me. So if I was a student, you know, that's that was be the direction that would probably work for me in picking out a text, you know. But I really like that because for me, when I was younger, I would probably throw those books out the window. <laughs> as I I'm being honest, yeah. as I've aged, I am finding that my 
um, interest has changed. I am preferring to read historical um, books from a historical context and even with some political information, governmental information in it, which shocks me. It's been very intriguing to learn so much over the last couple of years as my um, interest has changed. But if that is what enlightens you, then perhaps you need to check out, you know, certain sections in a bookstore Mm -hmm. just to see what would, you know, draw your curiosity. But at the end of the day, as long as you read and you can comprehend what you read, even if it's to gain um, information, hey, I I think it's a win. We've got to be able to teach our our students how I mean, if they're going to be reading the book on their phone or their iPad or or whatever, mm-hmm. and we know that they're going to be getting the notifications, we've got to teach them how to, you know, turn those notifications off and really kind of dive in. Uh, they they say it's important to teach them how to build stamina, particularly in a digital text. True. It says, you know, you can take breaks and you to reduce eye strain and improve focus, but students should also be encouraged to build up the time they read challenging text. So I think it, it would be a good exercise to be like, all right, you need to read for 30 minutes or you need to read for 60 minutes without And we really need to start that in lower grades because mm-hmm. our college students have a ton of informational text that they have to digest and unpeel. So I think this is a very important article. Yeah. And then um, the other tip they have is called noting. It says most long digital text formats include annotation and collaboration tools, which can help students mm-hmm. engage more deeply with the work if the tools are of high quality and the students learn to use them regularly. So it's important to teach, you know, how you do make notes. And that is something that's nice about like a Kindle. Like if there's a word you don't understand and you can long press that word and it'll give you the definition, you know, that's useful. Being able to highlight important Mm -hmm. information or the main idea within a passage, all of those things. I will say this, um, a lot of our high stakes assessments provide those tools for students as they're um, reading long passages um, to help them with answering their questions. So I think that that's an important point that the article made. All right. Well, uh, are you ready for the bright idea? I am ready. Let's go. All right. Most educators will agree that school is more than just teaching academics. It's about teaching life lessons that prepare our children for the future. But how do teachers find the time to focus on that? Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to give us some ideas on how to do just that with what her colleagues call decision education. Jillian Hargrove is the Senior Educational Content Designer for the Alliance for Decision Education and a former high school English teacher. Jillian, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks for having me on. So so first, we're going to start way up in the air here. What what exactly is decision education? Because I think it's something that we all think about, but we don't really have a name for it. Okay. So uh, yeah, decision education, what we're trying to do with that is help students, you know, even in the first place, recognize the need to make decisions, you know, when that's arising in their lives and um, being able to conduct skillful processes for forming judgments and making decisions. So that can apply to things such as in the moment decisions, you know, where it's like, you know, just, you know, I'm deciding what to eat today or you know, somebody set me off and I want to make sure that I stop myself from engaging in an argument. Um, we also consider habits as decisions. So that's something that we deal with, um, you know, every day. And then, of course, you think of deliberative decision making, which is something more like, you know, am I going to college? Should I buy a car? Some of those, you know, really big pivotal moments in life. So with decision education, we're trying to um, create lessons and programs that address all of those things for students. And, um, you know, we're really targeting students in grades 7 through 12. So the secondary education part. I think most people, I'm going to have trouble articulating this. Most people would agree that there is a need for this, but it's almost part of me kind of says, you know, shouldn't we figure this out on our own? Like, why do this? 
Yeah, this is something, you know, a lot of times people just say, oh, you know, this is something that you learn at home or, um, you know, you learn by experience. But we have the attitude that, you know, it's better to learn these kinds of things when you're young and you have opportunities to practice them, um, you know, rather than waiting for something negative to happen in your life. You know, you'd rather know up front. And I think something else that we find pretty motivating is, you know, a lot of times you see online people talk about things that they wish they learned in school. And, um, you know, of course, sometimes that can be very low level practical things like, oh, I wish I learned how to do my taxes. But a lot of times it's, um, you know, people talk about ways of, you know, they just wish they knew how to think about their everyday lives, like constructing those habits or, you know, when they have all of a sudden have a lot, have a lot to deal with in their lives, you know, they wish they had the skills to do that. So we do think that it is important to learn it preemptively before you have to deal with something um, that's difficult in your life. So what are the, the little habits that, that you're teaching students um, that are just like the things that maybe you don't think of on a daily basis? Yeah. So I think, you know, instead of actually saying these are specific habits that you need to work on, what we really try to teach with all of our decision-making lessons is actually just how to approach them. Because we know that everybody is going to be dealing with different habits, you know, in in their own ways or different things are going to be important to them. So with our HabitWise program, we actually focus more on teaching students to recognize how a habit is created, how we form these habits somewhat subconsciously. So uh, we teach about the habit loop, um, which, you know, is just, it applies to really every kind of habit. So no matter whether you're dealing with, um, you know, eating habits or just trying to motivate yourself to exercise or put down the phone so you can get some sleep, that's something that's, uh, that works with all of them. So in our HabitWise program, we just talk about how that habit loop where you have Uh, a cue and a behavior and a satisfaction and sometimes a negative side effect is present in no matter what kind of habit that you're approaching. And um, we just try to get students to recognize how that affects so many different parts of their lives. So, so you're really kind of digging into the psychology behind habits. Definitely. Um, So Charles Duhigg's um, The Power of Habit was something that was uh, pretty inspirational to us. We thought that was an interesting concept. And, you know, just reading more about habit research, you know, something that is not effective for people is saying you should do this habit instead of that habit. You know, everybody knows that, (laughs) but they don't know how to kind of pick the habit apart. And um, something that the psychologist uh, Judson Brewer talks about is just really getting curious about your habit. And, you know, once you kind of know all the little gears that that work within a habit, it's easier to just figure out, all right, what's the habit that I, you know, want want to do to replace the existing one? Okay, so who's backing you all? You guys are, are a nonprofit. Who's the, who are the, the people, the powers that be that say, like, this is something that we need to, to get out into schools? So right now, you know, we have just uh, a lot of people who are have been our supporters for the past five years who actually are in the business world, and they have found a lot of these things, you know, um, you know, just with deliberate decision making, especially, uh, has been helpful to them in business strategy. So it really comes from a place where you know you see all this kind of stuff in pop psychology books that have appeared in recent decades and also business strategy. And, um, you know, people are snapping these up, but they're not really accessing them until they need to use them, um, you know, in business or just the workplace or in their lives. So it really just comes from people who've been talking about this stuff behind the scenes in their work and say, you know, wouldn't have been so much nicer if we learned this stuff earlier in life. So, so you were talking about the kind of the little things, the habits, but you also mentioned that, that you guys offer some education on, on the big things, like you said, purchasing a car, purchasing a house. How, what resources do you offer educators to, to teach that? 
So um, the place where we actually got started with that was um, a, co- a problem that's common to students in Philadelphia and then also just other big cities is that there is a school choice situation where students can actually apply to a number of high schools and, you know, they sometimes have over 100 schools to pick from. Um, and, you know, they're not guaranteed that they'll get into all of them. But a lot of students don't even know where should I apply in the first place because so many of these schools have, you know, different themes or, you know, they, they just have different uh, options in terms of what they're offering. So that was actually where we got started because that's one of the, you know, few truly deliberate decisions that you know, people who are in middle school that young are able to approach. So we put together uh, a program called High School Explorer that really just breaks down some of those elements of deliberative decision-making, where it is really just stretching it out into a process and, um, you know, just making sure that you're gathering information. So there's some media literacy elements in there. And then, um, you know, just being really aware of what are your preferences and how do each of these alternatives stack up to it? Because most often for, for students who have, you know, a big call to make like that, whether it, you know, it's, it's in more rare cases that they would be going on to high school where they can choose which high school they're going to, but more so, yeah, like the college situation, you know, it's more that you want to do what your friends are doing, or you just want to get the decision over with because it feels difficult. So we try to provide resources that really just, you know, break that process down into the different elements. So really considering alternatives and how they match up to one's preferences or goals is something that we try to provide in our programs. So for listeners that were listening carefully at the top of the show, I said you're with the Alliance for Decision Education, but that that term, decision education, is that something that you all coined or is it something that you heard about and then say, let's let's build off of this? So yeah, we're actually trying to get that term to gather some some strength. So um, there are a couple of other organizations or people who are doing similar work to us, and we've long been trying to figure out, you know, what do we actually call this thing? So decision skills is something else that we talk about. Um, and then, you know, we finally recently actually made a pivot in our strategy where we are um, trying to become field builders and just really you know, bring together and try to amplify what other people in the field are doing. So just in conversations behind the scenes with people doing similar work, we said, all right, you know what, we actually need a term for this thing. So we're going with decision education, you know, with the capital D and E. So I would say it is kind of a new usage that we're trying to get out there just so people can recognize, you know, this is the umbrella term and then start to realize what kinds of things fit underneath it and whether they align with what we're trying to do. Um, under that umbrella, and we already talked about habits, but you also have, I think, a program that you guys call Mindful Choices, which almost seems to be like, we, we've done an episode where, where a school district out of Baltimore was doing, um, I think it was, I don't know if it was yoga or all sorts of breathing techniques. It's kind of, it seems to be in line with that, right? Yeah, definitely. And of course, mindfulness in schools has become trendy recently. And, um, you know, that was the first program that we started with because we really just had the the idea that, you know what, if you can kind of control those in the moment impulses, um, that really is the foundation to, you know, just being able to uh, better approach habits and deliberate decisions. So that was where we got our start. And um, we were going direct to a lot of schools within the Philadelphia School District and helping teachers, uh, you know, learn training them to lead their classes in mindful breathing techniques. And that was something that um, a lot of teachers just found, you know, brought some more calm uh, to the classroom, you know, at the beginning of the day, or when students were coming back from recess is just a way to get ready for learning. Before you were in this role, you were a uh, high school English teacher, correct? Yes. Okay, so 
what's it been like? I mean, has this been rewarding for you to, to leave the classroom, but still be able to kind of teach these lessons and kind of spread them through schools? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the decision education thing, even though we weren't using that term, when I was a teacher, I always found myself trying to bring in elements of psychology that I had learned about, you know, when I took AP psychology back in high school and learned a little bit more about ed psych. So I was always interested in things like um, locus of control and motivation, because that was something that actually came up a lot in the literature that I taught. I, um, I taught 12th grade British literature. So I always found that those psychology elements were things that actually help students get a little bit more engaged in the literature. And when we were analyzing, you know, why did a a character do this or that? um, It was always interesting to really talk about decisions and break it down that way. So that was something that I actually always had an interest in and also mindfulness as well. And tried to bring that in even when I was talking about things like Sherlock Holmes, where it's just this idea of, you know, trying to be more observant and taking in and gathering information and analyzing it as a way to make, make decisions before you take action. So that was something that, you know, when this role came up, it was just a perfect alignment with things that I was already interested in. And, um, you know, I was just always interested in making English instruction a little bit more practical. And this is just an interesting opportunity that, you know, really addresses practical skills in, in ways that haven't been done before in schools. I mean, I guess as a teacher, though, you must have saw a need for this type of education with the students that you were working with? Yeah. So being a 12th grade teacher, um, decision education, the, the need definitely uh, made itself known because I had so many students, no matter you know what level of English they were taking, you know, they all had to make a decision what they were doing next year. So, you know, some students were going on to college, but they had to decide whether they're going to four year or two year colleges and where they're, they were moving away. Uh, but you also have students who are trying to decide between, vocational school or a trade school um, or go on to the military or just go into the workforce. So definitely, you know, even though they didn't face those deliberate decisions every day, you know, they had so many decisions also had to make about you know, their lifestyle and what they wanted to be as young adults. So this is definitely something where I think students would have felt like they were using their time a little bit more wisely if that was the kind of thing that we addressed in school. I actually found your work through a Medium post that you had made where you were talking about decision education um, in the classroom and how to, to basically evangelize your students without it feeling forced. Um, how do you do that? A lot of teachers are doing this kind of thing already where they are just trying to give students a little bit more responsibility in the classroom. And I think it's something that, you know, it comes up if you have students, especially who are doing Uh, experiential learning projects, which not everybody has the opportunity to put in place. But at the very least, most teachers are doing something with group projects. And, you know, there's so much focus on, you know, 21st century type skills these days, where it's just, you know, trying to give everybody a little bit more um, sense of leadership. And I think that is something where it's just a, a natural alignment where you can teach students how to just, you know, approach the project in a collaborative way where they are just focusing on, all right, How do I, you know, what is the approach that we're going to take in the first place on this project? So generating some alternatives, um, having a little bit more systematic process of gathering information. And then something that we think is really key to uh, better decision making is predicting outcomes. So that is something where a lot of times, especially young people, just rely on wishful thinking. You know, whatever they want to happen, they kind of expect to happen. But it's just um, kind of an easy thing to help students, especially if they're procrastinating or they're distracting, just to make a prediction, you know, like what grade do we think we're going to get and why? So um, just thinking about that more deeply and then um, following it up after they take action with some reflection piece. So I think some of these things are pretty natural uh, to many teachers, but 
you know, with that post that we did, uh, you know, just even having kind of a decision-making process organizer was something that I think, you know, just puts it on paper and helps students just get more organized as they're uh, approaching that kind of thinking. Uh, I know your website is full of resources for teachers, but are all those free? Like if, if an educator is listening and they want to go check those out, do you just go to the website? Yes, absolutely. Um, so yeah, if you just uh, go to allianceforddecisioneducation.org, we do have uh, programs for yeah mindful choices. So the mindful breathing program and then habit wise. And then, um, you know, we also even have teacher resources. So one's called burnout blockers, where it's just using uh, decision education principles in your professional life. So everything is available for free. And um, yeah, we're, we're happy to just start talking to people more and uh, learn how they're using it. Yeah. And so do you guys actually do coaching as well? Or is it is it just pulling those resources and bringing them into the classroom? So, yeah, as soon as we're able to get in contact with everybody, you know, right now we're kind of in a model where if somebody reaches out, we're happy to work with them. And, um, you know, even if they have kind of a seed of an idea that they're thinking about with decision education, we work with them just to talk about, you know, how how we can uh, bring it to fruition. So um, previously we had a model where we were going directly to schools, coaching teachers, but now we switch because we have people from all over the country um, rather than, you know, in one single district. So anytime that people want to reach out, we're always just happy to talk more about how we can support them. All right. Well, the uh, term again is decision education. The website is allianceforddecisioneducation.org. If anybody wants any more information, Jillian, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, inform us about it. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. (laughs) All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Now I have to say decision education, of course. Well, and it might line up with our next question. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? We should definitely be teaching all kinds of decision education principles. Um, So helping students with in-the-moment choices, conscious habit formation, and deliberate decisions. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves to be loved, for sure. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Finding the time. I think you know there are lots of demands on your time, and there's lots of ideas out there, and then just trying to make changes within a limited amount of time is very difficult. What's the best gift to give an educator? I think I guess I already answered that as well. Definitely just more time to think, I think, um, especially when I was in the classroom, you know, there, I was always just looking for extra time to, you know, just figure out what can we do differently? How can we make improvements rather than kind of always being in that go, go, go mode? Which teacher changed your life? Uh, that was Mrs. Tolbert. So she was my journalism instructor in high school. And uh, why she changed my life was just because, um, you know, we really had an experiential learning approach to uh, journalism. And it was something where, you know, we kind of you know, worked on it in school and out of school. And I just, you know, learned so much from collaboration and also just writing about that. And um, that was something that I always wished I could have that kind of model. I wished I could have uh, taught in regular English classes, too. And last question, pen or pencil? Ooh, uh, pencil, actually. I'm, I'm still a pencil person. I think pen's winning right now. I need to go and tabulate it, but it's good to see someone in the pencil column. So uh, yeah. we, we appreciate that. Jillian uh, Hardgrove, again, uh, the uh, organization is the Alliance for Decision Education. Alliance for Decision Education.org is the website. We appreciate your time. 
All right, thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.